You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDTM. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. As we inch closer to January and the start of the Biden administration in Washington, America is still deeply entrenched in the hardship of the coronavirus. And when President-elect Joe Biden is sworn into office, all eyes are going to be watching how he handles the monumental task of navigating a country through what is hopefully the final stretch of a pandemic that has ravaged and shaken this nation to its very core. It will likely be the biggest test of his leadership, and it's happening right out of the gate. However, a pandemic response is just one aspect of Biden's larger plans for health care as a whole, a sector that has been tested over and over again this year. The pandemic has not only pushed our healthcare workers and medical researchers to the edge, but it has also exposed some major systemic issues within our current healthcare model, namely around access, affordability, and equity. That's where we want to spend the rest of the hour looking at how Joe Biden plans to approach healthcare when he is sworn in as president in January. And joining us for this conversation is someone who spent a lot of time looking into this very topic. Amy Goldstein is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who currently covers health care policy for The Washington Post. She's one of the reporters at The Post who worked on the latest installment of the Biden Agenda, which is the Post's ongoing series that looks at Biden's policies and plans for the next four years. Amy Goldstein, welcome to Detroit Today. Good to be with you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing just how important the pandemic is to Biden and his team and his move to create this 13-member coronavirus advisory board within the first two days after winning the election. So let's start there. What can you tell us about this board? Who's on it? And what do we know about the work that they're doing? Well, the fact that the creation of this COVID-19 advisory board was uh, President-elect Joe Biden's very first act since it was clear from enough vote counting that he had won the election, says something about the priority that he's putting on this issue. And he had been saying, if you recall, during the campaign, that unlike from his vantage point, uh, the Trump administration, he was going to put a real emphasis on surrounding himself with people who had scientific and public health expertise. Uh, So there are 13 people that he named to this board. Uh, As far as I understand it, um, they have subdivided the work to some extent. Uh, so a man named David Kessler, who's a former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration uh, back in the 1990s, he is mostly spending his time uh, thinking about vaccine issues. And now that the first vaccines are getting approved, one has and one more is likely to in the next few days, um, how those are going to be distributed to whom. Uh, somebody named Vivek Murphy who was a Surgeon General of the United States uh, during the Obama administration and is uh, President-elect Biden's uh, designee to be Surgeon General again, has been mostly looking at um, issues of testing and uh, the adequacy of supplies of personal protective equipment, things like masks and gowns and stuff like that to keep healthcare workers and others safe. And a woman who's um, uh, a professor at Yale named Marcella Nunez-Smith has been looking a lot at healthcare equity issues. And in fact, she's been designated by the president-elect to be the head of a new COVID equity task force that Biden has said he's going to create. So there's a March 12th document that listed actions Biden vowed to take on day one as president. Talk about what was on that list and how it may have changed 
over the course of the year. That, of course, was back when we were still in the throes of the Democratic primary. Uh, How different does that list look now? Well, that was one of a series of campaign plans uh, that now President-elect Biden issued, um, all of which sort of had the theme that um, uh, President Trump, in in, uh, Biden's judgment, wasn't doing enough. And he basically said, if by the time, uh, you know, he was projecting forward optimistically, he, Biden, uh, became president, if Trump hadn't done these things already, he was going to. And there's a whole range of things from increasing testing a lot, increasing the availability of drive-through testing so people didn't have to get out of their cars uh, to get a test. Um, he was doing some things within the government, such as uh, creating a national board on um, contact tracing, uh, creating a fuller use of a law that gives the government the ability to um, step up manufacturing of things that are needed for a national emergency. It was a law mainly for wartime, but that has been used at times, and he wants to use it more uh, in times of this public health crisis. So there's a whole list of things, and as I understand it, what's happening now inside the transition team is there is a health policy team um, that's part of the transition that's sifting through all these campaign plans of figuring out which of those things are still relevant, uh, what should be done, in which order, whether things should be added, and that's the work underway. And let me just say that last week when um, the president-elect announced who was going to be leading his health care um, uh, team within uh, his presidency, um, including California Attorney General Javier Becerra to become Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, in the speech where he announced those appointments, he also uh, announced the first three things that he's going to do in his first 100 days in office. Uh, He said that on January 20th, the day that he's sworn in, he plans to sign an executive order requiring masks to be worn everywhere that the federal government can control that kind of thing. So, Mm. for instance, on buses and trains that cross state borders, uh, federal government has jurisdiction. So he's going to order mask wearing where he can. He's also going to work hard within that 100 days, he said, to enable most schools to reopen and stay open. And with respect to vaccines, which is obviously a very important issue right now, he set the goal of distributing at least 100 million COVID vaccine shots, as he put it, during those 100 days. And what he didn't say is uh, the first two vaccines that are coming along require a shot and a booster shot. So it wasn't clear whether he meant 100 million people or 50 million people each getting two shots. Hmm. I'm talking with Amy Goldstein, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who's currently covering health care policy for The Washington Post. We're talking about what health care policy is going to look like in a Biden administration, how soon we'll see changes when he is sworn in on January 20th, and what we should expect with things like the Affordable Care Act and, of course, the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you would like to see changed in our current healthcare system. What are the biggest issues you have run into while trying to navigate our healthcare system? What do you think of the Affordable Care Act? Have you had to seek treatment for a new or chronic condition during the pandemic? Uh, what has that experience been like? Uh, are you a nurse or a doctor or other healthcare worker? And give us a call. Tell us how you are feeling 
in this moment. What could President Biden do to offer you more support or relief once he is sworn in? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, especially give us a call and let us know what your experience has been interfacing with the healthcare system during the pandemic, if you've had to do that. We've heard a lot of stories about people running into problems they did not anticipate, of course, uh, because of, of the pandemic. We really would love to hear about that during this, uh, during this conversation. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Amy, uh, I wonder if you can talk about plans for the Affordable Care Act, which, of course, uh, we has been with us now for almost a decade. Uh, it has survived lots of challenges, but that that effort to to overturn it, I feel like, has really stopped us from serious conversation about the changes that it really does need. I mean, there are a lot of things that uh, that need to be tweaked in the Affordable Care Act to make it work better. Uh, how much is Joe Biden going to be able? to accomplish in in that realm uh, once he's once he's sworn in well whether or not the Affordable Care Act needs tweaking needs uh, expanding needs killing um, <laughs> is a matter of political perspective it really is right <laughs> uh, but Joe Biden has been uh, squarely in the camp that um, that law should be used to do two important things that he's been talking about for a long time one is expanding the number of people in the United States who have health insurance. And the other is making care more accessible and affordable. And these issues um, uh, really uh, dovetail with what this big, awful pandemic has exposed. Because if you think about it, many people have been losing jobs because of the economic fallout of uh, COVID. And if they've lost jobs, they've lost health insurance. And if you remember back to the campaign, many of the Democratic candidates were saying the country really needs to switch to something called Medicare for All, which mm -hmm. is basically a variant of a single-payer health care system, which the government plays a larger role in uh, setting up insurance, or at least paying for insurance. And unlike many of his opponents, uh, including uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, Joe Biden all along has said, no, 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 no. What we really want to do is use the Affordable Care Act as a mechanism to expand coverage. So he wants to do things like increasing insurance subsidies that the federal government has been giving people up to a little bit into the middle class so more people can get those subsidies. He wants to expand Medicaid in more states. He wants to create a public insurance alternative to the um, private health plans that are sold through ACA insurance marketplaces. Now, the catch for him is that doing any of those things will require Congress's approval. And to your question of how likely that is to happen, it really depends on what the political makeup of Congress ends up being. I mean, it's clear that the House is going to have a Senate uh, a Democratic majority, mm -hmm. um, so they're likely to be sympathetic to the new president's goals. 
uh, whether or not the Congress is controlled by Democrats or Republicans uh, is, as many of your listeners may know, really going to be determined early next month by a pair of runoff elections in two Senate uh, races in Georgia that were too close in uh, November to know the outcome. And what happens with those two Senate seats in Georgia is going to have a large set of implications for how easy or hard it is for the incoming president to achieve his broader health care goals. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. I want to work someone into the conversation right where we are uh, right now. Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers. What's on your mind, Aaron? Good morning, Stephen. I think that the biggest thing that Joe Biden could do is to embrace single-payer health care. Somewhere between 7 and 12 million Americans lost their jobs, and along with it, their employer-sponsored health care. The fact that Joe Biden is against single-payer medicine, he he said if a bill came to his desk, he would veto it. The fact that he is against single-payer is stupefying. It's clear that, I'm going to make this clear, he would rather line the pockets of the donor class than improve the health and well-being of American citizens. Uh, Aaron, you know, uh, we, you and I have talked about this before here on the program when you've, when you've called. I'm glad you called today because we're talking specifically about this with somebody who is, who's covering it. Um, uh, Amy Goldstein, uh, talk about Joe Biden's opposition to, to single payer or Medicare for all or whatever you would like to call it and whether uh, he might get enough pressure from – you know, progressives in the Democratic Party, if they get a majority in the Senate, to push a little further uh, in that direction. I know, you know, it's a, it's always kind of a delegate dance that uh, the Democratic politicians feel like they have to have to do uh, on this issue. Not moving too far left to alienate the center, not moving too far center to alienate the left. Uh, but but walk us through walk us through the calculations on that here. Um, Well, Aaron, your perspective is interesting because it really illuminates the pressure that uh, the incoming president is going to face within his own party from people who are uh, ideologically left of where he is on this big issue of health care. And, uh, I mean, I'm not going to predict. I think political predictions are a dangerous hobby for journalists. (laughs) But I will say that it was notable that during the general election, Many people, Aaron, who share your view about single-payer health care or Medicare for all, which is the lexicon that many of them used during uh, this most recent election, were pretty quiet on this subject because they had a common goal of trying to defeat the current Republican president. Now, the question is, now that they've all succeeded and Joe Biden is going to become the next president, how much is that... Uh, disagreement within the party about the best way to approach expansions of coverage and affordability of care. How much is that disagreement going to reassert itself? And that's what your comments are illustrating. Mm. And is that something that is that something that we think over time becomes more possible? I mean, you know, if you go back 20 years, we probably couldn't imagine that the ACA could have gotten passed, and yet, uh, you know, Barack Obama gets elected in 2008, and two years later, we have it. 
is there an inevitability, perhaps, to the march toward more inclusive healthcare policy in this in this country at this point? And is you know, uh, for people like Aaron, I'm sure it will never come soon enough. But are we are we moving in that direction in a way that that seems like we wouldn't move back? In fact, you know, uh, Joe Biden said something to that effect. Uh, during the campaign, it got used against him in a, in a really spurious ad that took it out of context. But he seemed to suggest that even he thinks eventually we get to a system that looks like that. Do you do you feel that same that same momentum? Well, let me make two points to your question. Um, focusing on the word you used of inclusivity, mm-hmm. I think that uh, the incoming president would say that he is all for inclusivity. But the question is how to accomplish it. And that's where the disagreement is going to lie. So I don't think it's the goal. I think it's the beans that's in dispute. Um, To your broader question about, you know, is something more and more liberal inevitable? Um, I think it's very hard to predict where ideology is going to go in this country. But I can point out that If you think about what the debate was during the uh, passage of the Affordable Care Act, one of the ideas that was proposed at the time, and this was in, uh, you know, 2009, early 2010, the law was passed in March of 2010, just a little over a year after uh, Barack Obama had become president with um, Joe Biden as his vice president at his side. There was talk of a public option, a public alternative. Right to these um, private health plans within the health marketplaces or health exchanges that the law created. And many Democrats at the time felt that was a step too far, and uh, that was not included in the law 10 years ago. The fact that um, it's now part of the more centrist views of the incoming president compared to some others who are farther left in his party kind of goes to your point that ideas can gain acceptability in the mainstream over time compared to what what ideas are up against. Now, that's not to say it's going to pass, it's not going to pass, but it does illustrate the kind of things becoming more normalized as time goes on, sometimes but not always. Okay, uh, Amy Goldstein, reporter for The Washington Post, who has been covering health care policy. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow for a conversation about holiday shopping and how Americans are trying to balance the economic implications with public health concerns. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Anna Marie Seisling. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. Talk again tomorrow.